Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris well, Bowman. We're talking Bell Let's Talk, and this is actually our 50th Mindvine podcast. We were talking the other day that we weren't sure we would get four done at one point, and this is, and that was a couple of years ago, and this is our 50th. And uh, we're pleased to welcome our audience. We have an audience for this one. Um, I'm Daryl Mathers. I have my co host, Chris Bobie, and we have a very special guest uh, today in advance of Bell Let's Talk Day, but this will be published on January 30th uh, when kind of the country pays attention uh, collectively to mental health. But Please welcome uh, Kelly Scanlon, everybody. Thank we got an audience. Might as well clap. So, as, as you can tell by her uniform, uh, Kelly is a firefighter, uh, previously a uh, military veteran, Invictus yep. Games participant, uh, among other things. Um, really appreciate you, you being here. And we're going to talk about um, your story, which is quite broad. You know, we talk about yeah. <laughs> um, even as a child, you. And maybe you can talk a bit about your family, because uh, I know being a first responder is something that's quite common in your family. It is, yeah. I grew up in a first responder family, and when I say, when you talk about a first responder family, a lot of people think like, oh, like maybe a mom or a dad, aunt or uncle here and there. I think we're up to, oh goodness, I'll have. So the family I grew up in is my mom and my dad were both police officers. Uh, I had five cousins who were police officers and three uncles who were firefighters and now that I've grown up I'm a firefighter my sister's a police officer Uh, I've got another cousin who's a police officer and and then I was also in the military so that was a uniform job as well we got a few military people kind of dotted throughout so the family I think we're up to 10 or 11 of us spread across the board in different agencies was there any doubt in your mind when you were growing up what you wanted to do? Was it just clear, just judging by looking at a family picture, that you were going to be a first responder of some sort? It wasn't always clear. Like, I think police officer, because that's what I mostly grew up around, uh, was the predominant view in my head that I would one day be a police officer. But just like any kid, I had a thousand different things I wanted to do. I think when I was in grade five, I wanted to be like an archaeologist. And somewhere along the way, you want to be like a marine biologist and a thousand different things you think of. Honestly, firefighter was never on my radar until until I became an adult, until later in my life. And, and the military I also hadn't thought of when I was younger. It wasn't until I was in my teens and the military was kind of presented to me that that was a direction I started to go in. So first responder was always something sitting in my head, but it was never really finalized until uh, my adult life. So what was it like growing up in a first responder family? Did they, was the conversation about things that happened during the day, was that something that was presented or did they sort of keep the job separate and family life separate? I don't think me and my siblings were ever truly separate from the police life because not only were my parents both police officers, but that meant, and then the rest of my extended family were police officers, but that also meant that all of our friends were police officers as well. Like everyone I grew up around uh, was from the policing community. So no matter what, we were never really separated from that. A majority of the people in our lives were from the policing community or from the first responder community. Uh, I think my parents, they didn't like 
jump us into it right away as young kids. But as you grow up, you definitely kind of hear what the environment is like and what the atmosphere is like, because especially when we'd have family dinners, that was the talk. It'd be all the police officers who all work for different police forces kind of sharing their stories and comparing the way they did things versus the way another police force did things. So that was something we always grew up hearing around the dinner table for sure. We were actually just talking about this this morning, but uh, it's it's a common topic when we talk about young people uh, kind of choosing careers and the fact that they change careers so often or there's a great anticipation that they will change careers so often. Mm -hmm. And even when they're in high school, you know, being pushed to a stream and kind of deciding what direction they want to go at a very young age and how difficult a choice that is for, you know, for some young people. But for you, you, you kind of we talked to last week and you mentioned, you know, I think it was a career fair or something that happened yeah. and you were quite young and you had made up your mind on what you wanted to do. Yeah. So I ended up in the military when I was 16 and that decision was made around the time I was 14 because anyone from the Mississauga area, um, they have the Streetsville Bread and Honey Festival and one day the military set up uh, a booth there. I'd never seen them before. I kind of just started talking to them and they laid out this whole plan where you can join the military at 16 with parental consent and that just stuck with me right from, because I'd never thought about it before. Military was never on my radar before that moment. But that always kind of just stuck with me as something that seemed really interesting to do and something I thought I might want to do. So pretty much as soon as I turned 16 and I had my parents behind me, uh, I put my paperwork in. And a couple months later, I was in starting my training with the military. Well, and it wasn't too long after that you had your first tour in in Afghanistan. So can you tell us a little bit about leading up to that and then... um Making that first tour of duty. Yeah, of course. So I joined the Army when you're 16. They still do have the rules like you can't deploy until you're 18, but you can start doing the training really young. So I trained um, trained with the military, and I actually did part of my training through my high school. They had a co-op program, and so instead of going to high school, I earned high school credits by serving with the military. So I did that for a couple of years, turned 18, and put in my name right away to go overseas because we were in the middle of the war in Afghanistan. That was in 2009 and got selected and went and started doing, we did training for, I think it was around eight months. You train and different people with different skill sets have to train for different amount of times, but we trained for several months. And then in 2010, about a month after I turned 19, uh, deployed to Afghanistan for eight months. And we were talking that you're not sure exactly yeah, how young, how the youngest person to go on a tour uh, was, we, but you would be, you'd guess that you were among the youngest females to ever go on a, on a tour of a There were definitely 18-year-olds. I never ran into another 18-year-old female who had deployed. Um, as a 19-year-old female, I'll definitely be one of Canada's youngest female veterans mm-hmm. to deploy for sure. Like, I can't say the youngest. Don't want to claim mm-hmm. that because I have no actual idea. There might have been an 18-year-old, but at 19, definitely one of the youngest for sure. Your family must have been proud, but they must have been pretty anxious about you going at such a young age. Yeah, they, they've they always been that uniformed environment. So they were super proud when I did this and very supportive of me going. But of course, once I think it really hit my parents in the last couple of weeks before I left that they were like, oh my God, Like, what what are we doing? <laughs> like, If you talk to my mom, she, she talks about uh, the last time they dropped me off at the base before I was going to fly out. She talks about looking at my dad and being like, what? What have we done? <laughs> what what have we agreed to? Mm-hmm. What is going to happen here? 
And then, of course, my poor mom, uh, when I went overseas, it was always her. Whenever I'd call home, she was always the one on the phone Would some, when something would go wrong, like the base would get rocketed or we'd get attacked. And I'd be like, yeah, bye, mom, love you. And poor her. It was, it was always her every time. So I had to make a few calls back and always reassure that everything was okay, everything was fine. But, yeah, I don't think, uh, I think a few gray hairs definitely came <laughs> over that eight months for her. And it was, I guess, before you actually deployed is when uh, you, you suffered an injury. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, so take us through that, because I know it was a physical injury uh, at the beginning, and you obviously dealt with uh, some adversity while you were on your tour. And just talk about maybe how that kind of morphed into uh, the struggles uh, post-tour. Of course. So where, where my story of everything kind of going sideways started is... I was trained to go to Afghanistan when I was 18. And during the training, I was involved in a training accident that is not uncommon. It's not even an interesting story in any way, shape, or form. Like, there's injuries in the military all the time. It's just part of part of the industry, part of the game. So I had an injury and went and saw a few doctors about it. And as is pretty common, they were like, no, you'll take a few weeks off, let it heal, you'll be fine, no problem. And after that few weeks, it didn't get better. It didn't get better. And I kept seeing doctors and they kept saying like, it'll get better. It'll get better. It'll be fine. And it just never did. And we were hitting this point where with this injury, if it didn't get better, I wasn't going to go. And I really did. I still wanted to deploy. I still really did want to go. And I was also 18. You don't really understand taking care of yourself. You're very keen on just pushing through and making things happen. So eventually I just stopped bringing it up and kind of just pushed through the pain while we were doing the training, which was okay at the beginning. But then I went to Afghanistan and in Afghanistan, the injury just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse to the point where when I came home, I went and saw a doctor again. And finally this person was like, I don't know who told you you were fine. I don't know who said that everything was going to be okay, but you needed to be in surgery two years ago. Like you never should... If you didn't want this to get worse, you never should have been over there with this. Um, so I ended up having to to go in for surgery and do a long, long time of trying to do physiotherapy and see osteopaths and see all different kinds of doctors to get it healed. But what what had happened was, turns out I had completely torn the ligaments and tendons in my right leg, like fully severed, and no one really picked up on that. And then when you did 16 months of first pre-deployment training and then a tour in Afghanistan uh, the injury spread up into my knee into my hip into my spine all the way up into my right arm so the entire right side of my body suffered damage because of that and after I came home they really they said this is an injury that happens very rarely it especially happens very rarely for people your age so doctors weren't really sure how they were going to address it how they were going to fix this without making it just worse in the long run. Yeah, when you first heard the story and you to- told me about that, I thought, to push through, that must have been excruciating for you, like to, to, just the pain from it, but, but knowing with a complete tear and being able to do anything with, yeah. with the willpower to do that, it must have been tough. It, it was tough, it especially, I'll say by the end of my tour, like it was, it was very painful at the end, but again, you're, you're young and the Army is a world where... Um, 
we all kind of know that there's always a bit of suffering involved. Mm -hmm. So I definitely wasn't the only person who ever had these aches and pains. And you kind of just learn that that's just kind of the way it is. That's just the environment. So we ended up just pushing through. You end up just getting the job done because the mission is what matters. And uh, that's just the way it is kind of. So when you were back home and you're, you're dealing with these physical issues, at what point did you start to struggle with your mental health? So I, I think I started struggling while I was overseas. Like I started having um, anxiety and I started having nightmares. But when you are overseas, like when you're in Afghanistan, that's kind of, again, just considered par for the course. Like that's just part of the whole atmosphere. It's considered normal. Like you are definitely not the only one who has that happening. So no one really brings it up. It's not a big deal. And when you go home you kind of have this idea in your head that that's all just going to go away eventually. Um, for my first year, for your first year home, I think a lot of people, I know I was, is definitely focused on the reintegration part. You're, you're focused on reintegrating with your family and your community and getting used to being home again. So for the first year, a lot of this stuff just gets pushed into the background. So I'll say it was around a year, maybe a year and a half after I'd been home, that I really started to notice that something wasn't wasn't right. And it was because I, I had days, it started off small, it started off just as one or two days here or there, but I had days where I just felt down, just felt tired, just depressed for no reason. Like nothing had happened. There was no reason to be upset in any way, shape or form, but I just felt that way. I just felt that way. Um, problems with my sleep, nightmares and insomnia. And this all kind of started rolling together. And eventually I had to take a step back and be like, okay, something is not normal here. It's not normal to feel this way without some kind of cause and effect. Like you have the effect, but you don't have whatever the cause is. So eventually I went in for an annual medical with the military. And every time you go in, they do a mental health questionnaire. And this time I just answered really honestly about everything that was going on. And they picked up on that right away and pulled me in to talk with a mental health expert. And he was the one who, after a couple of sessions of talking with him, decided that he he said I was suffering from depression and anxiety and PTSD. And from there, now at this time, it was a hard time because here I am, I'm 20 around this time. I had this physical injury that was causing me chronic pain, and now I also had the mental health stuff that was dragging me down. So everything was pretty much going wrong all at the same time. In the future that you kind of had picked out at such a young age was you were losing a grip on that as well, right? Yeah, I was losing a, a grip on a lot of things because between the physical injury and the fact that doctors didn't think I was going to recover and then the mental health stuff, like I had always had this plan that I would stay with the military and then when I was done with the military, I'd follow my parents' footsteps and go become a police officer. And I still remember doctors sitting there and being like, that's just not a realistic goal for you anymore. And they said, I think it's time for you to reassess the direction you think your life is going to be able to go in because they said, you're never going to be able to run again. You're not going, like, you're going to have to leave the military. You are not going to be capable of doing the job anymore. Policing is just not an environment that you're going to be able to function in. Like, it's time for you to start looking for something that's basically going to sit you at the desk for the rest of your life, and that'll be that. It's, it's hard for the general public to understand what it's like to, to go on a tour of duty and come back or first responder. How did you find your family of first responders when you were dealing with this? You know, having that same perspective, knowing how tough it is in the field, you know, 
did you find that to be something you could lean on a bit more than somebody, a friend in the general population? Oh, yeah. My, my family, particularly my parents, were my rock through this whole situation because um, these struggles, both physically and mentally, all say pretty much ate up my entire life for around six years. Six years of struggling and six years of things just getting worse and never getting better um, and everything kind of just feeling like it was constantly falling apart. And my parents were the rock that held me down when I felt like I was just going to fly away. They they supported me. And even when they didn't understand, like they were always checking on me, always with me, always doing whatever they thought they could. And I know talking to my parents now, they had a lot of moments where they were like, we had no idea what we were doing. We just hoped that we were supporting me the best way they could. Uh, but they did other things too. Like my mom went and took courses on mental health. She went and did research on mental health. They used their job to access people who had experience with this and talk with them and kind of get that insight so that they could help me the best way they knew possible. And like, I give them all the credit in the world for me being kind of where I am today because they were the ones that made sure that in that six year time frame where everything was pretty much going wrong they made sure I knew that there was going to be something the next day something to look forward to and one of the key pieces in that kind of next step in your life was uh, the Invictus Games yep. and for people who don't know that's the that's the event created by Prince Harry for uh, veterans who have both physical and mental injuries and uh, it was held here in Toronto in 2017 uh, in 2017 yeah. and um, tell us a bit about how you got connected to the Invictus Games and what that experience meant yeah so what ended up happening there was um, I really hit a down point in my life and I kind of I remember sitting and thinking because I was in my early 20s which are supposed to be like the best years of your life and instead they were just some of the worst and kind of wondering like what is the point of all of this but like I said my parents were really kind of keeping me on track so I ended up making this decision that if I couldn't have a happy life I would try and have an interesting one uh, so at least I'd have some kind of story to look back on and think like oh that was cool that I did that so I started getting involved in things, started traveling. I went back to school. Like I did a ton of different stuff, kind of looking for whatever would be the wake-up call. And in that whole process, I was introduced to the concept of the Invictus Games by another injured soldier that I was friends with. And he explained the whole thing. He said, yeah, it's, it's like the Olympics or like the Paralympics, but everyone who competes is a soldier who was injured during their time serving with their respective militaries. So I put my name in to compete for Team Canada. Never been an athlete before that. Never had any athletic background. Um, and really just thinking that if this actually happened, it would be a cool story. Like, that would be a cool story. That would be something cool to be involved in. So I put my name in. And before I even knew I was on the team, before I even got accepted on Team Canada, I started thinking about and started thinking, okay, like, the Invictus Games is this big international event. People from all over the world are watching. The like the prince is there, and all these world leaders come out. And I started thinking, like, man, it would be really, em- especially because we were hosting in Canada. I was like, it'll be really embarrassing if I go and do these events and I like suck at it. If I <laughs> disgrace the country by doing really poorly. So before I even knew whether I was part of the team, I started to train. Um, which automatically kind of pushed me in directions I'd never gone before. Like I had a really tight group of people. I kept the same people in that time period, but none of my friends knew how to do competitive cycling or competitive swimming or competitive anything. 
So I had to go out of my comfort zone and find groups of people who were already involved in these sporting communities and learn from them. And I started training and I trained for a couple months. And after a couple months, I kind of had this huh moment where I realized uh, I felt better physically. Like the training in the early days was really difficult. It was really painful in the early days. But after a couple months of training, realized that physically I felt better. The pain I was in was reduced. Uh, parts of my body that usually had chronic pain would were reducing or either going away altogether. And mentally, I felt better too. Like if I got up in the morning and I had a really good workout, I felt lighter. I felt much more upbeat for the rest of the day. I was sleeping better. I was feeling better. I was more positive about stuff and kind of just started to have this realization that they may have had something here, something I'd never thought to use before. I never thought to use sport before as an avenue to get better. And it changed everything for me. And I like, I don't use that light. I don't use this phrase lightly, but it really was life-changing because I trained for several months, um, ended up making the team and finding out I was part of team Canada. And overall my whole training went for 16 months. And in that 16 months, my life completely flipped around from what I thought it would be to where I am now. They, they opened my eyes to the fact that it didn't always have to be this miserable, broken down life, that I could have a new future again, that all these doors I'd closed about my future suddenly were open to me again. So you, you basically you had purpose again. You had a, a yeah. goal to, to achieve. And so I guess during that time you're starting, were you at this point starting to think about the prognosis from your doctors? Like, I think I can do more. Like, I think yeah. I can revisit going into first responder or career. Yeah, that's exact. That's pretty much exactly what happened is I trained, I think by this point I've been training for about six months, really started to see the changes and an opportunity came out. I, I live in the town of Milton and the town of Milton Fire Department opened up a hiring. They were hiring part-time firefighters. And that was something a couple years ago I had really closed the door on. Like that was just never going to happen. That was never going to be something I could ever do. But I decided like, hey, let's see, let's see if I can do this. So I put in my application, went through the whole process, the whole testing, and ended up getting hired by them. And I, re I remember having a moment where I was kind of like, what am I doing? Like, can, <laughs> can I can I do this? And I trained with the Melton Fire Department as a new recruit concurrently with my training for the Invictus mm -hmm. Games. And every day I'd have that moment waiting for that other shoe to drop, waiting for that moment of you can't do this, like time to back it up and get out of here. But it just never came. Instead, things got better and better and better. I got physically better, I got mentally better, which the two of them just fed off each other. Like the fact that I had uh, a new uniform and a new team and a new purpose was fed off the fact that I had this goal at the end of Invictus. So the two of them just fed into this great positive feedback system when before my my mental and physical injuries were constantly just feeding each other to create this negative atmosphere. Now I had the fire department and I had Invictus feeding a positive one instead. When you were preparing for the Invictus Games, uh, you were approached to share your story and uh, you know all the elements of it, both the physical and mental health uh, components of it. And I wonder, like, well, take us through maybe your thought process. You've already, you know, you were down here, you were really struggling, and you got to heights that you 
weren't sure you'd ever reach again. Mm -hmm. And then they come to you with this opportunity where you have to kind of open everything up and, and be transparent. And I wonder how that, you know, how did you make that decision uh, to be so open and honest about your story? So by this point in time, like everyone knew that I was part of the Invictus Games, but everyone assumed that it was just related to the physical injuries, right? They had no idea that there was any mental health stuff involved in it. They always were just assuming it was because of the physical injuries that I'd suffered from. And I don't know why, oh, I know why they picked me. I was going to say, I don't know why they picked me, but I guess I do is this, the story of me being able to use the Invictus Games to go and become a firefighter when I thought that that was just never going to happen. Um, I think a lot of people kind of started seeing as this really like nice success story. It's really good success story. So people from the Invictus Games reached out to me and asked me if I would mind coming and telling telling my story about what had happened to me before and how I got involved in Invictus and what Invictus kind of meant for me. And I don't know why I agreed. Honestly, I don't know why I said (laughs) yes, um, because I didn't feel ready at that point. Like, I didn't feel like I was ready because no one knew about the mental health stuff. Like, my parents knew and a few close friends, but the wider range of people, like, no one knew that this was going on. I think they all just thought it was a little little mental. Um, but I said yes, and I remember sitting down and trying to write out my story, write out what happened. I didn't sleep for two days. I was up for 48 hours just sitting in front of a computer trying to type it all out, and I realized, like, there's just too much to this story. There's just too much going on. I can't put it down on paper. Uh, even So I didn't have anything written down. I didn't have anything prepared. I got on the train to go down to Toronto to meet with all these media people, and I remember sitting on the train and just being like, I'm going to cry. This is this is it. Like, I'm just going to fall apart. This is the worst thing I've ever done. Uh, and just thinking I was absolutely crazy and just like av- like panicking over the idea that this was going to happen because once it was out there, like once that story was out, there was no taking it back. There was no hiding all of this again. There was no putting it back in the dark. And somehow I just got up in front of everybody to this day, I have no idea what I said. <laughs> I don't remember what I talked about. I don't remember how the story went at all. I just remember talking until I saw people start checking watches. And I was like, I've probably been talking for way too long. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to just stop now. And something in that story connected with people. Because once that was done, I started to have people reach out who wanted me to come and talk to their media outlet specifically or come and talk to... Uh, this group or come and share my story here here or they wanted to come to Milton and they wanted to see me with the fire department and it just boomed from there and in the early days because I I had seen it as a negative that once the story was out there it was out there was no taking it back there was no pretending like it had never happened but it ended up being really freeing in the end because once I told my story there was no pretending like it had happened. There was no having to pretend for other people. They all knew it. And I couldn't pretend like it hadn't happened, which actually made it really nice to not have to hide that part of what was going on. And so my first couple of times talking publicly was about me, was about how I, how I felt about that whole situation. And then later when I started doing public speaking, it changed over to once I was in a good place and once I was really 
feeling like I had kind of healed, it became about sharing my story and hoping that it sparked something in someone else that they could kind of see that I had used, I had used sport, but that didn't mean, and maybe sport would work for someone else, but there's so many different alternative therapy types that can help someone who may be struggling. And I thought maybe this story can just inspire someone that if whatever they're doing right now isn't working for them, go and find something unexpected, something you would have never tried before. Like I never would have picked sport before. I was never involved in competitive sport as a kid, never really cared for sport as a younger person. And somehow I used it to change my whole life. And sharing your story, often people are afraid of the unknown. What will happen once I share that story? Because they see the, the way it's portrayed and then often they'll, they'll share their story and, and be surprised by the support and love that comes back. What do you think we can do, and, and maybe this ties to Bell, is to change that, to feel like people can share their story? Um, you know, what can we do in society to make it more open for people to feel free to relieve this burden that, that's on them that they're hiding often? Uh it's kind of really hard to say what the number one thing we could do. Like the really easy answer is that we have to eliminate the stigma around mental health, but that's a lot easier said than done. Like, how do you do that? I think the best way to do it um, would be right now through education. I, I realized that when I was struggling, I went and learned a ton, either through talking to doctors or doing research online. I learned a ton about mental health, about my own mental health about the science behind it and the research into it and the research into the different recoveries and therapies. And that really helped me kind of understand what was going on with myself, but that it also really helped me understand what was going on with other people. Mm. And that allowed me that when I was confronted with these people who kind of carried that stigma, it allowed me to look at them and not really take on what they were saying because I knew I knew the science behind why this was happening. I knew what the experts were saying about it. And I knew looking at that person, I'm like, you don't know anything about what you're talking about. People have this really bad habit where they seem to think they know anything about any of it. And none of maybe some of you guys are mental health experts, but um, none of us are doctors. Like none of us have done any research into this. No one knows the science before like why this happens but then they all feel like they got to make a comment about it um, so I think education for both the people who are struggling so that they understand what's going on inside their own head and then for people outside of that to start looking at this the same way we look at physical injuries like uh, I there's a lot of things I compare these situations to I talk about how mental health is kind of like ligaments and tendon injuries before we had uh, the scanners that could see that. And back in the old days, people would be like, oh, my leg really hurts. And they'd look at them and be like, there's nothing wrong with your leg. I don't know why you're saying your leg hurts. We realize now using science and using different medical advances that we can look under the skin and we can see what's wrong with it. But we're sitting at that point right now where we just, we don't have the technology to see exactly what is going on in everybody's brain. But that's being worked on, that's being invented, that's being created. We're just at that early day where people don't have that science in front of them yet. Uh, and then a lot of people want to complain and kind of go on about why uh, why do some people suffer and other people don't. And when I talk to firefighters, 
So in firefighters, we are statistically much more likely to suffer from cancer than anybody else. And I use cancer as an example, not because the two illnesses are anything the same, but just the way that it happens to people is some people have cancer because they've got things in their genetics or they were exposed to something that caused it. And I use the example where people will say, uh, like if we had a brand new person join the fire department and a guy who'd been on for 20 years, they both went into the same fire and the new guy came out and had cancer, no one would look at him and be like, well, he's brand new. Like, what is is he saying he's got cancer for? That's nonsense. Or if two people went into a fire and one person came out and they, and they say they had the same amount of time in and one person came out and had cancer, no one would be like, oh, they've been through the exact same thing. That guy doesn't have cancer. Why do you have cancer? Mm-hmm. You just need to switch the phrase cancer with mental health. If two people go into a situation and one's okay and one isn't, no one should be like, well, that person doesn't mm-hmm. have a mental health issue. Why do you have a mental mm-hmm. health issue? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work like that. Different people are affected for different reasons. Different people suffer from different severities. Um, and we just kind of need to accept the fact that we have to start looking at it the same way we look at physical injuries. There was a, you have a great quote <clears throat> talking about um, the severity of people's mental health issues that I saw yeah. as part of your work with the Bell Let's Talk campaign where you equate, um, or you talk about an experience where people coming up to you and saying, you know, I'm really inspired by what you've gone through, but, and I've had similar experiences, but it doesn't compare yeah. to what you've been through. Can you just talk about that experience a little bit? Yeah, so... I'll, I'll say the quote you're thinking about. The quote um, that I put out with Bell Let's Talk that really seems to resonate with people is, I said, people drown in oceans and people drown in pools and people drown in bathtubs and people have to stop worrying so much about how much water they're drowning in and just remember that you're drowning. Drowning is drowning either way. Um, and the way that saying came into being was I would go and talk about my story And afterwards, I would always have people approach me and they would say, like, I've struggled or a family member or someone I know has struggled. And because my story came from a military background, they'd always be like, oh, but it's like nothing like what you went through. And I, after hearing that exact same phrase four or five, six times, I realized it drove me crazy. It drove me crazy to hear it because it seemed to create this system of, one mental health issue being more valid than another mental health issue or that, ah, well, that person went through something horrible and you only went through something that was really bad. We shouldn't have to worry about you at all. It, it doesn't work like that. Like if we're constantly comparing and playing the game of comparing each other's stories, we're never going to get anybody fixed because there's always going to be that one person who just had a way worse story. And then we're just going to end up fixing whoever that person is and everyone else will just have to have to pretend like nothing's wrong. It doesn't work like that. People need to accept that uh, an issue, like a problem is a problem. If you're drowning, you're drowning. You need air no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're drowning in two inches of water or 200 meters of water. Like You're going to die if you don't breathe again. And that's just not to sound really dramatic <laughs> when I say that. Um, but... You need everyone needs air. Yeah, I think it speaks to the the stigma that we put on ourselves as a society. Like there is a stigma out there, but we feel like we don't. You know, like to your point, that what reason do we have to complain or to seek help when you see what other people are going through? So I think it's not just what society puts on us, but also ourselves, ourselves. Yeah. for sure. 
And you you mentioned uh, just before we kind of wrap things up, your work now as a, a firefighter. You started in Milton. You're now full time in Mississauga. Yeah. And uh, the fact that you're so public about um, your your own past uh, with mental health <clears throat> and your physical injuries, and you were able to overcome that and you know and start a career, I think speaks to uh, how far our society has come. You know that uh, maybe beforehand you would have been maybe uh, highlighted as somebody yeah, that had so. to avoid, right? Yeah, and as that, a no go. <laughs> yeah, and can you speak just a little bit about you know the reception you've gotten your professional community, the support you've gotten from uh, your fire departments that you've been involved with? Yeah, of course, both uh, both Milton and Mississauga have been extremely supportive. Like I got very lucky because I'm sure there are departments out there that maybe aren't as supportive about it, but. Um, Milton, when they, because I was with them when the story went public, and I, they were probably who I was most worried about when I told this story. I was like, what are they going to think that they have me as their firefighter? And the stories come out. But right from day one, the chief and all my fellow firefighters were really supportive of me. They supported me through my whole training with the Invictus Games. And I think it's because I was able to show them that I can do this job. Like I had been out on the road doing it, I'd never. Uh, I never faltered when they needed me and they took that. They trusted me that I knew myself and I knew what was going on with me to be able to do this job. And they worked with me about um, like their own learning and developing their own mental health awareness programs. And then when I moved over to Mississauga, I got really lucky. Mississauga is a department that they're already known for their mental health program. They have, um, a wellness and fitness initiative, which is all about firefighter physical and mental health prior to an injury. So they have a committee who's just dedicated to doing everything they can to keep firefighters in as best condition as they can before something happens. And then they have a great peer support team that's, they've won awards um, from different organizations for their peer support. So I got really lucky when I came into this, they were already organized in that. They were already kind of part of the the department's leading the mental health charge in the firefighter industry. And I just got drawn in right away. They they knew my story. They knew exactly what they were kind of getting with me. And instead of that ever being a concern for them, uh, instead they've been very supportive. And when I was doing ballot stock and doing things like this, they were like, yep, go forth, tell the story, share it. And hopefully the day will come when our peer support teams will only be needed for little things here and there instead of uh, the mass amount of issues that we're starting or that we've always had and are only just starting to address now. But yeah, both my departments have been fantastic. And sometimes you get people, I haven't had anybody say anything from either of the departments I've worked with. I've definitely had people make comments from outside of that. But like I said, as I've, I know myself and I know what I'm dealing with and what I'm capable of and so I just don't listen to those people anymore. <laughs> I know that they don't know me and they don't know what they're talking about. So they're easy to ignore. So as we mentioned, you're part of the Bell Let's Talk uh, campaign for this year. Bell Let's Talk Day is January 30th, but you'll be busy uh, after that as well. People will can see you at different events. How can they keep in touch with you on social media? Uh, the only public social media I have right now is a Twitter. I believe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe my handle is KCC underscore Scanlon. Um, and I'm kind of just in and out talking about the different things I've done or if uh, I'm going to be at an event, 
that's where they can follow it or if, where they can reach me if they're so inclined. And lastly, just like on January 30th, everybody is uh, encouraged to get on social media, on their phones, on text uh, with the hashtag Bell Let's Talk and Bell will donate uh, five cents for every interaction. I know it's been a big, uh, um, not only fundraising initiative, but just conversation starter for the last number of years that Bell has done this. It's uh, It's gotten the whole country talking about mental health for at least one day. So. Thank you very much for being oh, here. Thank you for we having really me. appreciate you being so honest and taking time to, to join us. And uh, we'll uh, we'll keep tabs on on your future and advocacy and and uh, look forward to maybe catching up down the road. Yeah, and who knows where I'll end up? So maybe I'll be back for your hundredth. Yeah. Well, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what you said it for. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, so much. Thanks very much, guys. Yeah.